Welcome to Celebration Church Online. We are so glad that you've joined us. We want you to share this broadcast with as many people as you can. We believe that it will bless and encourage us all in this season. Remember to continue reaching out to your loved ones. Stay connected with each other, especially with your cell family. The Bible gives us a pattern to look out for one another. Let's speak His Word and His strength will carry us through. After last week's message, I've had so many requests on what do I do? How do I live? What should I be doing in these perilous times? So I've entitled this message, How to Live in These Last Days. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5 through 5 says this. It says, This know also, that in these last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. You see, the root in the decline in our society is the decline in human character. This is a matter of corruption. You see, since man fell into sin in Adam, he has been corrupt. Unfortunately, corruption is something that progresses. In the natural, you might have a nice piece of fruit, for example, and uh, maybe a peach. You don't have to do anything to see it corrupt, except don't eat it. Why? Because beneath the surface, once it's picked, the corruption is already taking place. And it's only a moment in time before it manifests itself. It's already at work. And so it is with human behavior. It will go on until the whole thing is totally rotten. You see, corruption is irreversible. And there is no way to turn back the process of corruption, whether it be in character, in fruit, or in any other thing. God does not try to reverse the process of corruption. God does not try to improve or clean up or reform. God has only one solution, the new creation. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. You see, you can't patch up corruption. You can't educate people out of corruption because you can't change corruption. You can delay corruption. You can put fruit into a refrigerator and slow the process, or you can put it in a can, can it, or you can freeze it, but that'll only delay the corruption, but it'll still ultimately manifest. I think some of our churches have become like this. We've become cold, and we're nice, but haven't changed the process of corruption. The only thing that can do that is the new creation. If you can't say that you're a new creation in Jesus Christ, then you're still a slave of corruption. Now, there's three indicators, three key indicators that reveal this corruption. Three loves that are the source of this corrupting power. The love of self, the love of money, and the love of pleasure. Paul begins this warning that we just read with men shall be lovers of selves, lovers of money, and then he ends by saying they'll be lovers of pleasure. 
Altogether, he outlines 18 things that causes this corruption. But they all emanate from the first two, love of self and the love of money. Oh, and the love of self and the love of money ultimately express themselves in the love of pleasure. Let me take care of number one. You know, me. I want to take care of myself. I want to enjoy myself. I won't care for other people. That's the love of pleasure, the love of self. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this. It says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and they pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So what we see is that all of these moral issues, issues that are listed, these 18 issues, proceed out of the love of money and the love of self. The soil in which the love of money grows is the love of self. It's the underlying problem. What frightens me the most when I read this passage of Scripture is what the Apostle Paul says after he lists out the moral weaknesses and the blemishes. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. He says, This also know, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And listen to this. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. See, Paul's not speaking about non-religious people. These are professing Christians. He's writing to Timothy about the church. These are professing Christians that deny the power of thereof, the Bible says. You see, all of the gifts of the Spirit, and all the power of the Holy Spirit can happily coexist with the love of self. First, 1 Corinthians 13 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, God kind of love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Although I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and I have not love or I have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You see, the power that I'm talking about is not spiritual manifestations and gifts and callings. No. What is it really? Can I tell you what it is? It's the cross. Nothing but the cross being applied to our lives can deal with self-love. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You see, the cross is the power of God. Nothing can deal with self-love except the cross working in our lives. Look what Jesus says about the cross in Matthew 16. He said, Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life or his soul shall lose it. And whoever will lose his soul or his life for my sake shall find it. Look, Jesus said there are two steps if we're going to be his disciple. If we're going to follow him. Number one, we need to deny ourselves. This means to deal with that insistent, self-serving, self-pleasing, self-centered ego that's within us. It's in every one of us. That thing points to what I want, how important I am, where I'm seated at the table, how I am viewed by other people. You know, we're called to crucify that man. And we're supposed to tell it, no, you're not important. God is important. I deny you. I will not listen to you. I will not bow down to your commands. The second thing he tells us to do is to take up our cross. And he says, not only do we take up our cross, but then and only then can we follow him. You see, you cannot follow Jesus unless you have denied yourself and then taken up your cross. Well, what does it mean to take up the cross? Well, this is the place where you die. In today's parlance, we'd say, take up your electric chair or take up your hangman's noose and follow me. You die to yourself, your self-interests. You die to your ego. You die to your self. And you become a new creature in Christ. It's no longer I that liveth. But Christ now lives in me. You see, the cross is the place where your will and God's will cross. It's a pretty tough example, isn't it? See, God has a special cross for each and every one of us where we must say, not my will be done, but yours be done. Jesus didn't come to make church members. He came to make disciples. Disciples are the ones who have met these two conditions that I have outlined this morning. They've denied themselves and they've taken up their cross. And now they're endeavoring to follow Christ. Luke 14, verses 25 through 27 says, There went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said to them, If a man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brethren and sisters, Yea, and his own life, that is his own soul, he shall not be my disciple. And whoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Notice, Jesus is not concerned about those who were with him. He's interested in those who would be his disciples. You see, there's, there's no sacrifice to go with Jesus. We have churches full of people that say they're with him. But it's when we come to crises like we're in today we find out who the disciples are. What is he saying? It means that we must hate anything that keeps us from wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ. You see, there's two, differently, two totally different kinds of people in this world. There's those who go with him and those who follow him. You see, the conditions of discipleship are set forth, are set forth to where no one can really misunderstand what it'll take to follow Jesus. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, 
There are conditions that must be met. And they are absolutely in opposition to the spirit of this age. This age is a spirit of self-love, self-pleasing, self-interest. You see, even our education systems have taken out any emphasis on self-discipline, self-denial, discipline of any sort, or persevering through an issue or a problem or even receiving of discipline. No, it's all about self-esteem, self-cultivation, self-preservation. Listen, the more you cultivate yourself, the more you're cultivating rebellion. We're making rebels out of our young people. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, says this, Know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Does this sound like our age? For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. goes on to say, from such turn away. Now, I wish I had the time this morning to go through the remainder of the chapter. Because as Paul goes from here, he begins to give a description of how the occult and the witchcraft and the power that's behind the occult practices. But then he goes on and he says, he, and he lets us know that there's a power and a place in God that is far more powerful than the power of those who traffic in the evil of this world system. It might be worth your while to go look at these passages and uh, see what they're telling you and what they were telling and what Paul was trying to tell young Timothy. But before you do, uh, today let me encourage you. How is it that you and I escape this corrupt world? How is it that we escape this evil age? What are you and I supposed to do? Well, in 2 Timothy, that same chapter, Verses 14 and 17, through 17, it says, But continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You see, it is our continuance in the Holy Scriptures that makes us wise unto salvation. The Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine. Doctrine simply means sound teaching or the bedrock upon which one chooses to build their life. For reproof, that means factual evidence or proof against our own worldly ideas and ideals. And correction. This means to straighten again or to reform the idea of something that's been broken or bent and it's straightened up again. And then instruction in righteousness. This means to be tutored or to be educated or trained or disciplined or chastised and nurtured. See, the Apostle Paul, he starts his exhortation to Timothy in that first chapter in the fourth verse. And he's saying the same thing for you and I. He goes and he, and he starts the whole dissertation with, I've given you 
exceedingly great and precious promise, or we've been given exceedingly great and precious promises, that these, through these, you might be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped this world, or the corruption that is in this world, through lust. Now, I started this teaching by saying that the cross is the only way to change, to be transformed. Well, the cross is not a one-time event in the life of a believer. In fact, every time we're faced with the crossing of our will and our thoughts, by the revelation, the reproof, the correction, and the instruction of the Word of God, it leads us to the cross. That's where it leads us every time. We, like Jesus, must make a choice. Our flesh and our self-centered wills, our love of money, our love of pleasure, with all of the corruption that it brings and has brought into our lives, must now either prevail and lead into corruption, or we must, as Jesus did, throughout his entire life and his entire ministry, embrace the cross. You see, when the devil tempted Jesus with everything in the wilderness, he said three times, it is written. Jesus responded, it is written. And he resisted the devil. The pull on his will, the pull on his desires as a man could have led to corruption. In the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I should say, Jesus said, if this cup can be taken from me, let it be. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. You see, this sealed Jesus' fate. When he prayed that prayer, when he made that declaration, the cross came right on the heels of that decision. He knew that. Jesus is our example. And as it was for him, so it is for you and I. For each of us, there is a cross to bear. Not my will be done. Not my desires. Not my pleasures be done. But thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I heard a story once. It's called The Birdcage. About a man named George Thomas. He was a pastor in a small New England town in America. One Easter Sunday morning, he came to the church carrying a rusty, bent old birdcage. And he set it up on the pulpit, and uh, several eyebrows were raised. And as if in response, Pastor Thomas began to speak. He says, I was walking through town yesterday when I saw a young boy coming toward me, swinging this birdcage. On the bottom of the cage were three little wild birds, shivering with cold and fright. I stopped the boy and I asked him, What you got there, son? Just some old birds, came the reply. What you going to do with them, I asked. Oh, I'm going to take them home and have fun with them. I'm going to tease them and pull out their feathers and make them fight. I'm going to have a real good time. But you'll get tired of those birds sooner or later. What will you do then? Oh, the little boy said, I got some cats. They like birds. I'll take them to them. The pastor was silent for a moment. How much do you want for those birds, son? Huh? Why, you don't want them birds, mister. They're just plain old field birds. They don't sing. They ain't even pretty. How much? The boy sized up the pastor as if he was crazy. And he said, $10. Well, 
The pastor reached in his pocket and took out a $10 bill. He placed it in the little boy's hand, and in a flash, the boy was gone. The pastor picked up the cage and gently carried it to the end of the alley, where there was a tree in a grassy spot. Setting the cage down, he opened the door, and by softly tapping the bars, he persuaded the birds out, setting them free. Well, that explained the empty birdcage on the pulpit. And then the pastor began to tell this story. One day, Satan and Jesus were having a conversation. Satan had just come from the Garden of Eden, and he was gloating, and he was boasting. Yes, sir, I caught the world full of people down there. I set me a trap. I used bait. I knew they couldn't resist the love of self, the love of pleasure and the lust for other things. I used the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And I got them all. What are you going to do with them, Jesus asked. Oh, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to teach them how to hate and abuse each other, how to invent guns and bombs and viruses and philosophies so they'll kill each other. I'm really going to have a lot of fun. And what will you do when you get done with them? Jesus asked. Oh, I'll kill them all. How much do you want for them? Oh, you don't want those people. They ain't no good. Why? They'll just, if you take them, they'll just hate you. They'll spit on you. They'll curse you. They'll kill you. You don't. How much? Satan looked at Jesus and he sneered. He said, your life. Jesus paid the price. He went to the cross for you and I and paid the whole price. The pastor picked up the cage, opened the door, and he walked from the pulpit. Well, I'm not quite done with us yet today. I want to close with three things that you and I can do, especially while we're on this lockdown. I want to talk to you about how you can use your time wisely to stop corruption, the corruption that comes into our lives, how we can embrace the cross so that we too can become partakers of the divine nature of God. This is a great time to begin to develop lifelong habits and disciplines that'll help you and mature you in your walk with God. First of all, and I'm asked all the time, how do I read the Bible? How do I read the Bible? You know, I'm surprised how many Christians really don't know how to read the Bible. So let me, let me help you here. Let me give you a few points. First of all, you, must sure you, you have to make sure you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I recommend you buy a version of the Bible, a translation, uh, not a paraphrase. Something like the New American Standard Bible, or the New King James Version of the Bible. They're accurate translations and will be great for study as you mature and you grow in your understanding of God and His Word. Secondly, you can either choose a book of the Bible and work your way through it, or join us in our daily reading program. If you're just starting to study the Bible, uh, I would like you to pick a book. Uh, and read a little bit each day, maybe one chapter a day. 
If it's your first time of reading the Bible in earnest, start with the Gospel of John. That's always a great book. It's the Gospel of Love. If you read one chapter of John every single day, which will probably take you no more than about five or ten minutes, you'll read John in its entirety in 21 days. After reading John, move on to other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. These are similar to John, but from a different perspective. Then I would suggest you go into the epistles where the Apostle Paul wrote. Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. I always remember they're ordered by the anacronym, Go Eat Popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Which are, these are books that were written to believers. These were, were books that were written to churches. These letters from the Apostle Paul, they're loaded with encouragements and instructions for living the Christian life. Of course, the book of Romans is probably our most important book, I think, in the New Testament. It is filled with essential doctrine. And doctrine simply means teaching. Genesis explains how everything began. Psalms is filled with songs and prayers of David and men who poured their emotions and feelings out to God. In fact, when I read the Psalms, I find encouragement for every season of life that I'm going through. Proverbs are just what they say, principles that you can use in daily life situations to guide decisions and give you wisdom for living. So I'm going to encourage you to start by working your way through one book at a time. And then as you gain confidence and hunger, you can begin to do more. Then you can take our daily reading program, and that helps you read through the Bible in a year, the whole Bible in a year. Can you imagine that? Third, people ask me all the time, how do I read the Bible? Well, the secret is this. Read a little bit every single day. You see, getting God's Word into your life and into your spirit doesn't have to take long. Start small. Five or ten minutes is better than nothing. Sometimes less is more, especially in regard to uh, when, when reading means you're actually going to remember more by taking time to mull over it, to think about it. Uh, and then choose a time, choose a place that's convenient for you. Many people read their Bible first thing in the morning. Well, that's great. I like to do that, to dedicate the first part of my day to spending time with God before all the distractions get in the way. See, when my children were small, I would take them to school and then I'd go to a local coffee shop to read my Bible. Well, that was great in that season. Uh, and I think it's important that each one of us finds what suits us in the season that we're in. But whatever you do, make time to read your Bible every day. And then here's number four. Another how is before you begin to read, pray. Before you open your Bible, ask God to speak to you. You have to remember that the Bible is the Word of God. And the author of that book, if you're a believer, lives inside of you. And he wants to reveal his word to you. If you're not a believer, he says, if you seek the truth, you will find it. God is looking to speak to you. Ask God to help you to understand his word. Ask God to use his word to teach you, to direct you, and to even redirect you, if it's necessary. Ask him to use his word to help you know him and to love him. Jeremiah, uh, I think it's chapter 29, verse 13 says, you will seek me and you'll find me. If you seek me with all of your heart, <laughs> I want to seek God with all my heart. Right now is a good time to be seeking Him with all of our hearts. God loves to reveal Himself to those who seek Him. 
And five, if God is going to speak to you, don't you think it might be good to write it down? I recommend that you have a journal or a notebook handy for your time of reading. Let me give you two good questions to ask when you read your Bible. Number one, what does this teach me about God? What is this teaching me about God? And number two, what is this teaching me about how I should live? Those are two great questions. And as you read, you'll find one or two verses that seem to maybe jump off the page at you. They may speak to an issue that you've been grappling with, or maybe they may even answer a question uh, that you've had for a long time. And often God's Word brings comfort to us or encouragement, or it gives us an example of, you know, who to follow or an example to follow in the Scriptures or, or what to avoid even. You see, when you read something that speaks to you, it's important that you stop and you write that Scripture. And, and I, I'd say take that, that Scripture and write it out in full so that you can go back to it. Uh, pause and let that message sink in and be willing to come back and meditate on it. Read through it again. Read what your thoughts are about it. Uh, that's actually called meditating, when you chew the cud or you ruminate. It simply means you bring it back up, bring it up to memory, chew it again, because these words are God's words to you. You see, if you'll do this, you're going to find that God will begin to change the way that you think about yourself. He's going to change the way you think about the situations you're finding yourselves in. You may want to ask God to help you remember the messages He brings to you. Ask Him to recall it to you when you need it. You may even want to memorize some of the passages that you're writing down. But all I can really say is that it's important that we're intentional about getting God's Word into our thoughts. If you are, you'll soon see that your relationship with God will begin to thrive and your life will begin to change. Now, the Bible's not a reference book. It's the Word of God. And it's meant to transform us, not just inform us. The second thing I want to talk to you about this morning is how to pray. So if you get the Word in you, some people say, I don't even know how to pray. And I, I just want to re recommend that you use a, a very simple framework, and I'm going to be very brief here, especially when you're not feeling all that inspired to pray. It's a pattern that you can follow whether you're praying for five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour, an hour, or through an all-night prayer meeting. And it's always the same pattern. Number one, you, it starts, well, it's called pray, P-R-A-Y. P, start with praise. Prayer should always begin with offering praise to God. Psalm 100, verses 1 through 4, one of my favorite psalms. In fact, my wife uh, showed me this. It says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter, in, enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. That's how we enter in before God, with thanksgiving and praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. So start by glorifying God, blessing his name. Thank him for his goodness in your life. Just tell him how much you love him. and Tell him why. See, praise takes the focus off of yourself and all your struggles, and it puts it back on God, who's your answer. P-R- Repent. 
Well, obviously, we must repent of any known sin. But we also need to realize that it's easy to allow attitudes into our lives that are inconsistent with God's character. So after you've spent time praising God, take time. Search your heart for what might have come between you and him, even if it's just a wrong attitude. Ask him to put the spotlight on any area that needs to change. Oh, you may be surprised at what he shows you. John assures us in 1 John 3, verses 21 and 22. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God, that whatever we ask Him, we receive of Him. 1 John 1, 9 says, he says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These are important scriptures. You see, when your heart is clear, you'll start to pray with more confidence. And that's God's way. God wants you to be confident when you come before Him. Then, P-R-A, ask. Ask. Jesus says in John 14, verses 13 and 14, He says, and whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You see, the only condition Jesus gives us is that whatever we ask for in prayer must bring glory to God. But don't just ask for your needs. Especially during this time, consider others. Consider the needs of other people as well. Every believer should have a list of unsaved people they're asking God to visit with His love and with the truth of salvation. And finally, the last is P-R-A-Y. And Y is a very important word, yield. You see, once you praise, and once you repent, and once you ask, spend some time with God simply waiting and listening. Half of prayer should be listening. Assume a posture that says, Lord, is there anything that you want to say to me? Or is there anything that you want me to do? Jesus says in John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, when you yield to God, expect Him to put impressions and desires in your heart. It may be as simple as a thought that comes to your mind, or it may be subtle. Something subtle like, you know, if you're not careful, you might miss it. It's, you have to be sensitive to these things. But as you learn to act on those indicators and act on what you're sensing, you're going to find out that sometimes the greatest miracles can be attached to the faintest of impressions. So start today to apply the P-R-A-Y method of praying. See, you're beginning an exciting journey. And it's going to lead you to being more consistent and more effective in your prayer and your prayer life. And right now, some of you really need to take this time and develop that prayer life. You've neglected it. Listen to what God has to say to you. One last thing. This is also a great place to have your journal or notebook. Because if God is speaking to you in prayer, don't you think you'll want to write it down? Write down those impressions. Write those leadings in that journal so that you can recall them and follow through on what God is showing you. And then... 
as we're in the lockdown, and let me just close out with some very practical things we can do as families, because I think this is really important at this time, too. I think it's important that we develop our time together, especially as husbands and wives. And, of course, with all of our family members. You're stuck at home. And I, I know it's very easy to get into a rut of non-interaction or not engaging or avoiding each other. Or we can begin to get on each other's nerves. I'm hearing some reports of people struggling and communicating. You see, this happens when we're not used to having close proximity to each other. Maybe before the lockdown, we've all been preoccupied with all of the business of the, our hectic lives. But now, God has given us time to recalibrate. Recalibrate our families, our priorities, to reset our compasses. Let me talk to husbands and wives. It's really important that you make times to be with each other and to listen to each other, to talk to each other. My wife and I, and I'm encouraging you to make a determination to never allow yourselves to turn against each other or turn away from each other. But always, in every situation, make the decision that you're going to turn towards each other and then really listen to Hear each other. Listen to what you're saying. Take time to listen to uplifting messages together. Try to do it every day or once every other day. And I recommend those short two to seven minute messages by Pastor Jimmy Evans of Marriage on the Rock or Dr. John Gottman from the Gottman Institute. You see, if you listen and you practice the simple things that they teach you, you're going to become expert listeners. And you're going to begin to have a much deeper and a much richer marriage. We need knowledge sometimes to have understanding and understanding to operate in wisdom. Dads, let me talk to you. First of all, or husbands, God has made you the head of your home. Spiritually, it is your responsibility to lead your family into knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Maybe you've never really been good at this. Maybe you don't know what to say. Maybe you have all kinds of excuses. But I know this. If you'll take the time to read your Bible, if you'll pray about your life, if you'll pray about your wife, if you'll pray about your children, and then if you ask God to show you what He is saying, you'll be used by God to create an atmosphere for discussion and fellowship around the study of what God has in store for you as a family. Now, I don't think this is going to be easy. First of all, let me give you some advice. Turn off the TV. Put those video games down for a while and set aside daily time to learn the art of conversing with each other. Learn how to talk to each other. We've lost that art. And then take time as often as you can to pray together. Read and reflect on what the Word of God says. Together. What is God saying to each family member? Listen to your children. Listen to each other. What is God saying? What is happening? And where are we going in our futures? We have a very, very uncertain future ahead of us. Talk about the second coming of Jesus. Is everyone in your household ready for the return of Christ? Or are some of us going to be like the foolish virgins that have not prepared our lamps full of oil when the bridegroom comes? Are we going to be caught off guard? Will one be taken in the field and will one be left behind? Will one be taken in the bed and the other be left behind? You see, now is the time to talk about issues and to repent of judgments and bitternesses and unforgivenesses. This is a time that we can... Take time. It's time to, that we have on our hands to carefully hear each other. 
and with understanding, we can begin to restore our dysfunctional and broken relationships. I don't know. I'm sensing that God is leading us back to the way of the cross. He's leading us out of our selfishness, out of our self-seeking. And quite frankly, all of us need to take more time to die to ourselves so that we can hear each other, so that we can manifest the new creation. It's no longer I that live in, but Christ who lives in me. God bless you. Thank you for joining us online. We hope and trust that you've been blessed by this service. Stay connected with us through our social media platforms, Facebook and WhatsApp. And tune into ZFM radio station later today at 7.15 p.m. Central African time for devotions with Pastor Tom Deschel. Stay safe. Stay blessed. Stay connected.